Romans 15, we've been spending a few weeks together in these verses, beginning in verse 22 and extending to the end of the chapter, verse 23. Let's read them together, standing in honor of the Lord and his word. Beginning in verse 22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, that is the church in Rome, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints." For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, verse 27, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And I know that when I come to you, speaking as a fact, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now for our focus this morning, I appeal to you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Specifically, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, once more we have assembled uh, under the authority of your scriptures and of your apostles. We note the pattern in the early church was that the, the people of God assembled for a handful of very specific things. They took together the Lord's Supper and they ate meals together. They sang spiritual songs and hymns and actually psalms from the psalm book together. They were taught how to live the life that Jesus commanded through the apostles, and they prayed. A very small list enumerated there in the book of Acts. While there is more the church can, should, and will do, these can never be neglected fellowship, the taking of communion, singing together, being taught the scriptures and prayer. And so, Lord, it is by prayer that we ask with one voice together that you would teach us this morning. May by your grace you give us minds to understand, hearts that are soft and receptive, and strength of will to be obedient to that which we have been taught. We sit together as a body of believers, pastor and people, elders and visitors, deacons and friends. We sit together at the feet of our shepherd Jesus. Would you lead us and protect us, provide for us and guide us in the scriptures and in life. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray, amen. Maybe seated. <clears throat> Over the past few weeks, <clears throat> living in these, what, 11 or 12 scriptures, there at the, the closing of chapter 15, we have been reading about and talking together about Paul's journey back to Jerusalem. This has been the subject of our attention. Paul's journey back to Jerusalem. 
what he intends to do when he gets there, the fact that he's not there now, and where he intends to go after he gets there. Make sense? He has been traveling, planting churches, encouraging churches, living for seasons among the people in a city, establishing leadership structures. And as we saw last week, referred to there in these verses, collecting aid from the churches in the region around the Mediterranean Sea, financial aid to bring back to Jerusalem where there was famine, persecution, and starvation among the Christians at the time. Paul is writing to the church in Rome while he's in the city of Corinth as he intends to go to Jerusalem to then come to Rome. Do you follow that? Nope. He's in Corinth, writing to Rome, where he intends to go to Jerusalem, and then to come to Rome. This is the subject, the context of this discussion I would like us to drop into the story now of Paul making this very trip back to Jerusalem where he hopes his church planting work will be accepted as good and valid, where he will bring that gift that he's collected and where he expects to meet opposition. I invite you to join me in Acts chapter 21. You can either follow along or you can just listen intently for this reads and is an epic story. A true story, but an epic story. Acts 21, we pick up Paul's journey toward Jerusalem, that about which he was speaking in Romans 15. We pick up Paul's journey back at a town called Tyre, a Phoenician stronghold north of Israel on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, modern-day Lebanon. You follow that? Good. You got all those details, and they'll never leave your mind. Verse 4. And having sought out the disciples, where? In Tyre. Okay? We stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were, willing, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. Are you imagining the scene? And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, which is essentially just south on the coast of the Mediterranean. And we greeted the brothers, meaning the Christians that were there in that city, and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, their their puddle-jumping if you will, picking up little trade boats, skipping down the coast of the Mediterranean Sea toward Israel. And we entered the house of Philip, I say toward Israel, toward Jerusalem. We entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with them. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He actually came northwest from Judea. But anytime you're leaving Jerusalem, because it's the, it's the presence and place of God's dwelling in the mind of the Hebrew, you're always descending. So if you go away from Jerusalem, you're going down. If you're going toward Jerusalem, you're going up, even if you're going north or south in the opposite direction. You'll see it in a minute again. 
So he went northwest down from Judea to Caesarea. Verse 11, and coming to us, this prophet Agabus, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus the Holy Spirit says, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, speaking from Luke's perspective, When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem, southeast. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart for? I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, that is Paul, we, Luke and the rest, ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us the house, bringing us to the house of Nason the Cyprus, Nason of Cyprus, I'm sorry, my glasses are missing. I don't know where they are. So I'm struggling. Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So now they're in Jerusalem, staying with this guy, Nason. When we had come to Jerusalem, verse 17, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, that is the brother of Jesus, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. That same word as in 1 Corinthians 10.31, they thought on and praised God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. These are the lies about which Paul references earlier in the book of Romans. What then is to be done about these rumors and these lies? Verse 22, they will certainly hear that you are in town. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men, Jewish men, who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses so that they might shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing to what has been reported about you, but that you yourself also live in the observance of the law. This is all in keeping with Levitical order. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we sent a letter with our judgment and said that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. This from the Jerusalem Council of 48 AD. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So Paul was doing what was necessary to dispel rumor. When the seven days were almost accomplished, the Jews from Asia, verse 27, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Not in prayer. Crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, meaning the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, that's one of the believers who was in Caesarea who came with them, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. They supposed, these were four Jewish men under a vow, but they supposed they were Gentile Greek men. Well, then all the city was stirred up. And the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Who's that? That's the local sheriff. Sheriff and Barney Five come running. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul, meaning they were presently beating Paul. They stopped when the, when the law showed up. Then the tribune came up and arrested him, being Paul, the one who was getting beat, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. 
He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought to the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people followed crying away with him. Just as the prophecy foretold, right? He would meet trouble in Jerusalem. The Jews would be angry with him in Jerusalem. And just as Agabus bound himself with Paul's belt, Paul was bound in chains and delivered to the Gentiles, that is, to the Roman soldiers. Remarkable, right? The next chapter details Paul's defense of himself. He, he speaks to the guard who has him. He says, uh, listen, can I talk to the crowd while we're up here now safely away from them? Up on the steps, there's a, you know, if you will, a SWAT team line down below. Can I talk to these people? Sure. And chapter 22 details Paul's defense of himself speaking in Hebrew to other Jews. The Roman soldiers can't understand what they're saying. Where Paul defends himself, he defends his ministry, and he even says that Jesus the Messiah specifically told him to go and spread the gospel among the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Well, up to that point, everything was fine. Verse 22 of chapter 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. The idea that dirty non-Jews might be saved he shouldn't be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, these are all outward signs of grief and anguish and righteous anger. Verse 24, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying he should be examined by flogging. That means beat until he tells you what we want to hear. To find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and who is uncondemned? Now when the centurion said this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? This man's a Roman citizen. The tribune said, came to Paul and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes. The tribune said, I bought my citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I'm a citizen by birth. Those who were about to examine him means beat him until he gives up the information they're looking for. Those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, that's Paul, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So, Paul again, in Jerusalem, arrested. Jews are furious with him, but now he's in a court proceeding with the Jewish higher-ups and the local Roman government officials. Paul is giving his defense, but the setting devolves into a shouting match. Look with me at chapter 23, beginning in verse 10. When this courtroom proceeding erupted into a shouting match between Jews and Paul and the Roman governors who were in the room. When the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him away from among them by force, and bring him back into the barracks. The following night, look, the Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. He's going to Rome. <laughs> his dream was to come true. Paul would be granted his wish. His wish that he spoke of in the letter to the Romans, that how he earnestly longs to come and see them in Rome. He's going. He went to Jerusalem, delivered the gift that unified 
the Gentile and the Jewish church. He is accused and bound by the Jews, delivered over to Roman soldiers, just as the prophecy foretold. And now Jesus himself assures Paul of his desire. He is headed to Rome. Well, back to Romans chapter 15. If you're vaguely unfamiliar with this, the, the story of Paul's journeys in the book of Acts, I can't encourage you strongly enough to just read it. Just sit down and read it. You can fill in the blanks later. It just reads like, a, like an amazing, you know, epic tale. So far, over the past few weeks, we have considered two of three attributes deserving of imitation implied through the writing of the Apostle Paul in these closing words of Romans 15. And so this series, I've been calling it Three Attributes Deserving of Imitation. So far, we've considered Paul's confidence expressed in God's providence. We considered last week Paul facilitating the practical work of the church. And now this week we'll consider Paul's boldness and peace in prayer and petition. Boldness and peace in prayer and petition. I'd like for us to consider five characteristics of prayer shown to us through Paul's request in verses 30 to 33. And then we're going to consider four big picture challenges as we conclude this section. Ready? You thought I was kidding about nine points. I wasn't. Five characteristics of prayer shown to us through Paul's request. Number one, prayer is not useless. In the final paragraph of Romans 15, Paul urges the Christians to pray for him. I appeal to you, brothers. And he invokes the name of Jesus. He invokes the, if you know Jesus, if you believe in him, if you know the Spirit, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. This is not unusual. It was Paul's regular practice to request prayers for himself and for his ministry. A few examples, ready? 2 Corinthians 1.11, you also must help us. You help us from where you are by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Ephesians 6.19, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. What is supplication? Supplication is prayer requests. Pray also for me that words be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Philippians 1, 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Writing then from the jail in Rome. Colossians 4, 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. One more, my favorite. 1 Thessalonians 5, 25. Brothers, pray for us, period. Paul knew it and exemplified it. Prayer is not useless or else he would not so regularly ask for it nor attribute to prayer such bold credit as he does in that little compilation of verses secondly prayer is effective it is effective verse 32 paul says 
Pray for me so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Pray so that by God's will I may come to you. John Murray says of this verse, God answered the prayers, but not in the ways Paul had hoped or anticipated. (laughs) Paul no doubt knew the difficulty he would face upon his arrival in Jerusalem. We just read it was being predicted in multiple towns by multiple people. Jesus affirmed, though, his travel, you're where you're supposed to be. Just because you're facing hardship doesn't mean, A, you're in the wrong place, or B, that prayers aren't being answered. Right? You're going to Rome. Answer to prayer. Just as Murray pointed out, the prayers of and for Paul were being answered. Paul was indeed spared the danger of those who were waiting for him in Jerusalem. They didn't get him. They might have beat him up a little bit, but they didn't kill him. He was, in fact, delivered safely to Rome under the care of a remarkable Roman guard. You can read about that in Acts 23. He wasn't just able to go to Rome. He was escorted there by an army because that's how the Lord answers prayers. (laughs) Truly, James 5.16 is true. A familiar verse to many of us, the prayer of a righteous. uh, The King James is nice and simple and beautiful. The prayer of the righteous man availeth much. In the ESV, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. To those who know this, the request, pray for me, and the offer, I'm praying for you are not merely Christian cliches. Our world cannot know this. News anchors have begun to abhor and demean the notion that thoughts and prayers are offered to those suffering from tragedy. News anchors view the statement as lifeless and lacking teeth. The Christian ought to know better. The Christian ought to live and pray accordingly because prayer is effective when offered in faith to the God of all creation in the name of Jesus the Son by the confidence of the indwelling Spirit. Precious church member uh, here at Hillcrest has been been praying for her grandson for a number of years now. On a whim, I bumped into this grandson at a gas station. He was getting a slushy. I was getting a Diet Coke for my wife because we're both addicted. And I just struck up, with, struck up a conversation with a, a slightly disheveled young man. Hey, I'm Steve. Hey, nice to meet you. And we got to talking. I said, hey man, come join me at Hillcrest. Come, come by the church sometime, you know? I could tell he was troubled. I could tell there was a lot on his mind. There I am in like, you know, basketball shorts and backwards hat, you know? The true preacher's attire. And he said, Hillcrest? I said, yeah, just right over here. He said, my grandma goes to that church. Oh, really? Yeah, her name's so-and-so. I know, oh, I know her. And as it turns out, I knew him. You know why? Because Martha was trying to be, because she had asked me to pray for her grandson. Will you pray for my grandson? And ever since that day I ran into him at the gas station, I kept looking for him to pop through that back door. And every time I went to that gas station, I prayed for him. And every time I saw Miss Martha here at church, I say, I'm praying for your grandson. I'm praying for him. And every time I think of him, I pray. And every time I see his face, I couldn't get his face out of my mind. But months passed. Now, years passed. And then I get a call this weekend. On my anniversary, I'm trying to celebrate and church people calling me. 
and I very sacrificially took the call. And Actually, it didn't. I called her right the next day. So, and she said, the Lord has answered our prayers. And grandson, he's, he's going to rehab. He's, he's checked himself in. It's a Bible-based program. It's, he didn't have to go kicking and screaming. He, he said, I gotta go. He's got a friend who just went through it. And he said, you can do it. You can do it, pal. You can do it. And he surrendered his cell phone and he's taking his Bible and he's gonna go work on a farm and just get right. Go to church every Sunday because that's required. Prayer is effective. It might take some time. It might take some diligence. It might, as Jesus says in Luke 11, take some perseverance, knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. Prayer is effective. Thirdly, prayer is necessary. Prayer is necessary. R.C. Sproul says, prayer is to the Christian what breath is to life, yet no duty of the Christian is so neglected. Spurgeon was asked, what's more important, reading your Bible or praying? You know how he responded? What's more important, breathing in or breathing out? Prayer is necessary. Innumerable times, Jesus went away to pray. We just read that he, he went away to pray. He got away from everyone. He, he arose before the sun to go and do what? Pray, as was his custom, meaning who knows how many times? Most likely every day, if not multiple times throughout the day. Stealing away moments to pray. The sinless son of God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus implored Peter, James, and John to watch and pray, quote, so that you may not fall into temptation, but they slept anyway. And as Colin Smith points out, Peter didn't watch, he didn't pray, and he did fall into temptation. Prayer is necessary. Since prayer is such a facet of Jesus, our example, and since prayer is so obviously vitally important to Paul the Apostle, shouldn't prayer be a mainstay in our lives? Shouldn't it? Moment by moment, day by day, as the hymn says, I need thee every hour. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. The chorus, I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. I love verse three. I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide or life is vain. I can't agree more. If not for Jesus with us, his spirit in us, the Father's will being done through us, Life is vain. How then are we to walk in such persistent purpose without constant prayer? Prayer is necessary. However, number four, prayer is difficult. Verse 30, Paul, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers. Strive. You could rightly paraphrase that as struggle with me in prayer. It's a long Greek word. The bulk of it is agonizomai. Agonizomai. Sounds like the word agony for a reason. It's the idea. It's a word of great intensity. It is the warfare of prayer waged against the forces of evil by determined saints in the spiritual plane of the unseen realm. According to Ephesians 6, we are embroiled in spiritual warfare. And prayer is our weapon. Struggle with me in prayer. Agonize with me in prayer. The same word is used to describe the struggle that takes place in an athletic contest, 
like two wrestlers agonizing, if you will, against one another for victory. Struggle, strain. Jesus used the same word when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would agonizomai. They would struggle, they would fight. It's the same word that's used for the way that Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, agonizomai. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Paul, when he summarizes his life's ministry in 2 Timothy 4, uses the same word when he says, I have finished the race. I have fought the good fight. I have struggled. But not with fist and sword, but in prayer. Paul waged war in prayer, Paul continually invited the saints in the various churches around the Roman Empire to join him and struggling in prayer. And what are we so prone to neglect, to diminish, to forget? Prayer. You think that's a coincidence? No, it is temptation. Not coincidence, it's temptation. So pray that you might not fall into temptation, not the least of which the temptation to a prayerless attempt at the Christian life. And I say attempt because there is no such thing as a prayerless Christian life. There is only a prayerless attempt at a Christian life. And prayerlessness is the surest sign of pending failure. Prayerlessness is a sure sign of spiritual pride. And pride goes before the fall. Prayer is difficult because the enemy knows prayer is effective. The enemy knows prayer is necessary. The enemy knows prayer is not useless. And finally, prayer is commanded. I mean, we find it, right? What does it say? I mean, there's a, I I didn't write it down. What's the verse, Tom? Tom probably knows. Tom knows everything. It says, pray without ceasing. Where is it? You should, I mean, it's in the Bible. That's right. Not just smart, but wise. Pray without ceasing. Jesus said it simply this in Luke 21, 36. Stay awake at all times praying. He didn't mean don't sleep. He said be woke, but Jesus woke, not some, Right? They think they're clever. Jesus told us before, stay awake, have your eyes open. In the spiritual, emotional, psychological plane, stay awake. At all times, praying. It's commanded. As such is the command that we are obliged to obey. Just because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and we are not bound by the law of Moses does not mean that we are bound to disobedience. We are slaves to righteousness. We are bound to obedience. The grace of God, Alistair says, does not relieve me of my responsibility to be obedient. The grace of God makes possible my obedience. Prayer is commanded. And every time we neglect it, we are being disobedient. And every time we're being disobedient, we are committing sin. At minimum, the sin of omission. After this sermon, it will be the sin of transgression, meaning willful. You were warned, you were told, and you still neglected it. And prayer, according to Isaiah, hinders, or excuse me, sin hinders our prayers. It's commanded. Now, there's a unique thing about the scriptures. The text of scripture is both the law of life, but the commands of the New Testament are unique to the Christian. The Christian has said, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. He is the commander of my life. I therefore voluntarily, by, by, by a, a, a gratitude, 
that is insurmountable, put myself under the authority of the scriptures. And by extension, under the authority of the elders of the church, so long as they are consistent with the scriptures. And therefore, every New Testament command is directly applicable to you, and you live under the obligation to obey. You don't live under the condemnation of failure, but you do live under the obligation to obey. However, similar expressions of command do not apply to the unbeliever. The unbeliever who has not put himself under the authority of the scriptures. You follow me? Christians are obliged to assemble on the Lord's day. We are told explicitly in Hebrews, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That's a command. And you know who it applies to? Christians who have done what? Put themselves under the authority of the text of scripture. Who is not obliged to assemble on the Lord's day? Non-Christians. They've not put themselves under that. They're not obliged to that commandment. It's not applicable to them. However, the call to pray is not like that. The call to pray extends beyond the life of the church. This command stretches across the spectrum of all humanity. All are commanded to pray, and our eternities depend on it. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead on the third day, then you will be saved. That's a prayer. That's a prayer offered from the heart who longs by God's grace to be forgiven. And the eternity of every unredeemed person depends on their obedience or disobedience to that prayer. To pray. Prayer is commanded and the consequences of it are eternal. Five things, five characteristics of prayer that we can note here in Paul's concluding words in Romans 15. Now as we conclude this section, I want to offer these four big picture points of application. If we are, as we began this study, if we are to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, we need to imitate more than his actions. We need a heart like Paul's. We need a heart like Paul's. The heart of a church planter, the heart of an evangelist, the heart of a missionary. Now, we may never specialize in any of those Christian practices, but we can live every day in our own sphere, developing and executing, if you will, a heart like Paul's. And this is the key word. His is the heart that is zealous for Jesus. Zealous for Jesus. And so, number one, the zealous heart is firstly a heart that Praise passionately. The zealous heart for Jesus is a heart that prays passionately. Friends, if we are more passionate about our favorite hobby, our favorite sports franchise, or our political persuasion than we are about prayer, then we are zealous for the wrong thing. That's not the heart of Paul. That's not imitating Paul as he imitates Christ. Paul made tents and he sold them to pay his bills. I don't imagine he was bad at his job. I don't think he sold lousy tents because that's not glorifying to the Lord. But he wasn't necessarily zealous. He didn't talk about it much, did he? He didn't rave about it much, did he? He didn't go to the local tent-making conference every year at the expense of everything else. He did what was necessary to put food on the table, if you will. But he was zealous for Jesus, and he was zealous in prayer. Friends, it is impossible to think about history and the history of the world without Paul. R.C. Sproul said, I suppose if Paul had never converted to Christianity, we would still know about him today because he was a super genius. 
It's impossible to think about history without Paul. Nothing would be the same for any of us if it were not for Paul's remarkable heart for God, our Kent Hughes. Nothing would be the same for any of us if it were not for Paul's remarkable heart for God. The zealous heart prays passionately. The zealous heart for Jesus has a vision, number two. The zealous heart for Jesus has a vision. What's Paul waxing poetic about? He wants to go to Rome and establish a mission springboard to go to Spain, the wild west, the untamed frontier, the ungospeled west of the Roman Empire. Pushing his boundaries and pushing his reach and pushing his travel to new heights. He had a vision. Having fulfilled his duty to spread the gospel to the Gentile world all over the the eastern, if you will, block of the Roman Empire, he wanted to go west. And so the question is, do you have a vision? Do you have a Spain? Do you have a vision for an unreached people, a hurting and lost population? They might be in some other country or they might be in your backyard. But do you have a vision for them? We have lost people right here in Coolwood. The question is, do you have a vision for reaching them with the gospel? Do you have a vision for reaching those unreached peoples, those lost, hurting people at your family reunion? Do you have a vision? If no, pray and ask the Lord to give you a vision the way he did for Paul. Be sure your vision is consistent with the clear commands of Scripture for Paul's vision for Spain was absolutely consistent with the exact word Jesus told him, you will be the apostle to the Gentiles, not something else, not something made up of a fabrication of his own heart and mind, but consistent with the clear commands of Jesus. And then just say, Lord, show me, lead me, give me a burning something in my guts to pray passionately about and pursue and seek and desire. And no matter the circumstances, put me there, whether it be in chains and in prison or what the, whatever. Put me there. Do you have a vision? A zealous heart for Jesus has vision. The third aspect The zealous heart for Jesus gives God credit for everything. Can't have a zealous heart for Jesus and a zealous heart for yourself. You can't have a zealous heart for Jesus and have a zealous heart to get rich at all costs. You will serve one master. The Lord can bless you and you can use those resources to further God's kingdom. I see that happen every day, right here in Hillcrest and beyond. The zealous heart for Jesus seeks to give credit to God for everything, which means he's in charge and he does the work and he gets the glory. The zealous heart for self talks incessantly about oneself, gives credit to one's own abilities. But zeal for Jesus gives all credit to God for his mighty work. The way Paul did in this closing section. What did he say, verse 32? So that, By God's will, I may come to you with joy. Paul compels them in the name of Jesus to pray to God that God's will might be accomplished and none of that points the finger of glory to Paul. Paul the genius. All glory and petition, all reason and motivation is zeal for Jesus, not zeal for self. Finally, number four, the zealous heart for Jesus sees all of life as a sacred mission. The zealous heart for Jesus sees all of life as a sacred mission. Listen carefully. Not that everything we do is sacred, but everything we do could be sacred. Paul spoke of his travels bringing aid to the Christians in Jerusalem and telling others about Jesus in a very peculiar way. Speaking of his service to Jerusalem being acceptable to the saints, this is the language of priestly ministry. Speaking of offering the Gentile churches to Jesus as an offering lifted up at the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament. 
Paul saw all of his life's work as, if you will, accumulating a sacred offering to give to the Lord. Here are my words, here are my prayers, here is my effort, here is my sacrifice. It's for you, it's all for you. Verse 27, Paul speaks of spiritual blessings and material response. Receiving the spiritual blessing of forgiveness and responding with a physical offering, a physical action, a sacrificial material response. I point this out by way of conclusion to challenge us, friends, to see the whole of our lives as having endless potential to be sacred But as a closing word of caution, achieving that ideal is impossible without prayer. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we have assembled this day um, grateful. Grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus. We sang about it. We sang about that, that wondrous mystery of Jesus on the cross We've sung about the the grandeur of our Lord and Savior. Now, Lord, as we dismiss and as we conclude our time together, may we not quickly forget that which we have considered, sang about, and been instructed by your scriptures. Give us sharp minds to remember. And Lord, may your spirit convict us in the days ahead to pray and pray and pray and pray. Help us accordingly in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand for one last song, friends. It's a great little song.